I have a feeling this is an, a government whose authority or a leader whose authority is beginning to drain away ever so slightly. Um, I mean, when the Daily Telegraph, for whom Boris Johnson has worked for decades, are now turning against him as viciously as they have in the last 48 hours, uh, you know there's a problem. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, the first thing I want to ask you about is one of those classic quotes, don't believe anything until it's officially denied. What do you make of the October firebreak lockdown story? Um, look, I just don't know. It's it's like a warning, isn't it? I mean, hospitalizations are going up. Hey, the schools went back last week. Do you know what happens when schools go back? Everyone gets coughs and colds. It's been happening for hundreds of years. There's no reason to think it's not going to be any different uh, this time round. Um, so, look, I, I, I have to say that if we're locked down again, I will not be obeying it in any way at all. End of. I'm just not going to do it. I mean, that doesn't mean I won't be sensible. Um, and I know also lots of youngsters in my part of the world, my daughter's class, half of them are off because they were at the Reading Festival. You know, I mean, these things are going to happen. Uh, I think Boris would struggle to lock us down again, even though we've been very, very compliant. Um, I have a feeling this is a, a government whose authority or a leader whose authority is beginning to drain away ever so slightly. Um, I mean, when the Daily Telegraph, for whom Boris Johnson has worked for decades, are now turning against him as viciously as they have in the last 48 hours, uh, you know there's a problem. Um, and of course, that's more to do with dividend taxes, national insurance increases. And by the way, it's not 1.25%, it's 2.5% because it's employers, and its employees. So I, I think they'd struggle to lock us down again. Um, I, I really genuinely do. The other worry, of course, is we're being told that the Pfizer vaccine becomes less, less effective after six months. Yet AstraZeneca, the bosses of AstraZeneca are saying, whoa, hang on a second. Number one, you know, we're not convinced of the need for a third jab. And number two, what about all the other people in the world who've not yet even received a first jab. So I think that debate is going to be very, very big. Um, and, and can I add, Nick, to this also, if I may, you know, Sajid Jab is making it absolutely clear that if 12-year-olds want to overrule their parents' wishes on the vaccine, they will be able to do so. Now, the test of this is that the youngster has to be competent to make a decision. If the JCVI can't say, that this is absolutely the right thing to do for 12-year-olds, how can any 12-year-old make that decision that he or she understand the long-term consequences of this vaccine? So it's a bit of a dog's dinner all round, um, but I, I have to say for my part, I now think an October lockdown is unlikely. What would that make of the previous series of lockdowns if hospitalizations and deaths in cases are at similar levels um, as we've seen in, in Israel, despite the vaccinations. If we get to that point and we don't do a lockdown, doesn't that cause just as much of a political problem in that it justifies the, all the lockdown scepticism that we've seen over the past series? 
Well, the excuse that'll be used, of course, is that we were dealing with a new disease. We didn't know how to handle it. And we do know how to handle it now. And endless lockdowns. I, mean, I think, I think a, a better example than Israel, actually, is Australia and New Zealand, where they're pursuing a zero COVID policy. It's never going to happen unless those governments change their mind. They'll be locking down for the next 10 years. Uh, and clearly, that is not the way forward. So, look, I, I, you know, I fully admit I could be wrong. Uh, they might panic and lock us down, but I just think they'll find uh, the level of compliance just would not be sufficient for the law to command any respect, or for the rule to command any real respect. Let's move on to Australia then, and I want to put you in a tough position here. I want you to imagine hypothetically that you're the Premier of the state of Queensland in Australia. And I'm choosing that state because it hasn't really had a COVID outbreak. It's had some cases from travellers coming into Queensland. It's locked itself down in terms of international travel, but also in terms of the border between Queensland and the other states. So the, the federal government of Australia has said, once the vaccines hit 70%, we're going to open up. What would you do as the Premier of Queensland, given that that mandate has come down from the federal government? Would you refuse to open up at 70% or would you open up? Well, of course, I would open up. I mean, I mean, I mean, that would be my instinct completely. But I think it's quite interesting, isn't it, that the federal structure under which Australia operates is beginning to see some stresses and strains. In a way, I, I mean, you, you know this better than I do, but I don't remember seeing those stresses within the Australian constitution writ, as writ large as they are at this current moment in time. And I have to say that economically, um, I think Australia is going to pay a very, very big price for this. I mean, they have isolated themselves from the rest of the world, cut themselves off completely from, from a, a very significant uh, tourist industry, uh, cut themselves off from international business meetings and everything else. It is a, an extraordinary act of self-harm uh, that I think Australia is doing to itself economically, but also within the structure of modern Australia as we know it. The reason I'm asking about Queensland so carefully is because I think they're really stuck because if they do open up, as, as you would, and cases and, and um, hospitalizations and deaths start to rise dramatically more than, than what the vaccine proponents have argued would happen, then the Queensland case would, would go a long way to disproving that vaccines are, are going to be the path out of lockdown. Um, so I think that the, the Premier of Queensland is stuck because if they don't open up, apart from all the damage and costs you, you've pointed out, they are implying that the vaccine is not going to be good enough to work. Uh, and if they do open up and they get a bad result, it's going to be just as disastrous. So I think Queensland, funnily enough, is the one place in the world to really watch here. It's the petri dish experiment of, of where the vaccines actually do work. Yeah, no, it's, very, you know, it's a very, very, very solid point you're making here. Um, but of course, that brings a wider point into debate, doesn't it? This is a brand new vaccine developed in very, very short order. None of us really know what the long-term viability of it is. Um, there's quite a bit of debate about side effects too. Well, all vaccines have some side effects and we've always known that. And we had this enormous row over MMR in this country, you know, going back a decade and more. Um, I'm still very much on the side that vaccines do work, uh, but I'm beginning to get a bit, you know, somewhat militant about being told that I must have a flu jab this winter and a third of vaccine jab. And I'm beginning to think uh, that, you know, giant pharma are winning the war in a way I'd rather they weren't. That sounds like the series of, of um, 
positions and opinions that have happened for lockdowns as well, where we're happy with one and then oh, the second one we're not so sure and then the third and the fourth is getting a bit ridiculous. But let's yeah, move on. Happened. Yeah, let, let's move on to something I wanted to ask you about for a while, which is uranium and nuclear power. Because this is an investment play that's really a, about a political decision, about the political decision to turn to nuclear power as part of the, the energy solution to the world. What's your take on the political situation, perhaps in the EU and in the US and the UK, when it comes to nuclear power? And what does that mean for the uranium price and the uranium stocks that might, might be recommended in, that, in our various newsletters? Well, you know, Europe has gone, as, as traditional socialist parties have suffered, in the polls, which they have. Well, there was a slight resurgence in Germany at the moment ahead of their elections, but as they've suffered, uh, voters on the left have moved further left, or a significant proportion have moved further left, and they've gone for the watermelons, green on the outside and red on the inside, and that's what these modern green parties are. They are very, very hard left-wing state-controlled parties, <laughs> and despite their um, you know, insistence on zero carbon, they are wholly against the one form of energy that pretty much is zero carbon, and that, of course, is nuclear energy. We saw what the Germans did in the wake of Fukushima. Um, France, which has had the biggest nuclear power industry in the whole of Europe, basically hasn't been renewing uh, and now has a very aging stock of nuclear power stations, which will not be in operation in five or ten years time so the one big decision that could change uranium consumption in europe is if the french say right we're going to renew all 50. but i don't politically at the moment see that happening just with the growth of green ideology in the united kingdom it's a very mixed bag uh, there are new nuclear plants going ahead hinkley point sizewell bradwell yet dungeness is not being renewed so it's a sort of sum and sum but again, there, the politics has changed because George Osborne decided that it was a great thing to have the Chinese Communist Party running our nuclear power stations. And now the political backlash against that is such. So I, for my part, um, I think it is unlikely that we will see very many new nuclear power stations built in Britain or the EU for the foreseeable future. I think we're gonna rely on wind energy, and we're going to rely on solar and we're going to be surprised uh, when we get massive blackouts because this stuff uh, can't provide as much electricity as we need. I mean, God knows how all these cars are going to be fired, after, fired up after 2030. I don't know. <laughs> but also interestingly on the energy debate, stockpiles of natural gas in Europe are incredibly low and the Russians are not selling more than we need for a hand-to-mouth existence. This is a very major strategic play going on by Putin at the moment, and we're playing into his own ha in, 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 into his hands. <laughs> and amazingly, you know, the proposal for a new deep coal mine um, up in the northwest of England in Cumbria. No, no, we, don't, we, we, we really mustn't do that, cry the politicians. Um, coal's bad. So do you know what we're going to do? We're going to import the anthracite that the steel industry needs. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't it wonderful? So I think we're leaving ourselves, and we've seen this in California, we've seen this in other parts of the world, uh, where you know, if you finish up wholly reliant on Vladimir Putin to keep the lights on, you may have a very real problem at some point and before too long as well.